Thanks for joining the Capital Church podcast channel. For more resources and to learn more about Capital Church, please visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at Today. So we're in our really quick, our Social Kingdom series. How many of you were here last week? Okay, about a half of you were here last week. I recommend uh, checking out the podcast. We talked, we've been talking about what, is, what does it mean to be a part of community. We dealt with a lot of different uh, messy things um, last week. And so if you weren't here, check that out. Uh, again, if you weren't here, my wife and I, we found out, we told the church last week, again, we have, we're, we have three sets or soon to be three sets of twins. And uh, we found out last week we're going to have a boy-girl. And so we're really excited about that. And just want to let you know we are, we're blessed, so we're done, guys. We have our little girl, so we're finished. We had a, could you pray for my wife? Could you pray for her? Because we had a crazy conversation two days ago, and she looked at me with that look. And she's like, I just don't think we're done, babe. And so I told her the devil is a liar. And... And she said, she's, we'll see. We'll see. No, no, no. There's no seeing. Seven is the number of completion. I am, Jesus said, I am finished. We are, we are done. All right. Uh, so I, what, my talk here, I just kind of want to map it out really quick because sometimes I can go, I know I can go on rabbit trails. But I want to I connect just uh, two thoughts. One thought is um, what does it mean to be alive? And I kind of addressed this last week. So I want to take, what does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be human? I promise I won't get really philosophical. But I want to connect that thought with what does it mean to be the church, okay? So what does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be human? And then what does it mean to be the church in the 21st century? And then I'm going to, at the end of this talk, if you want to figure out when I'm kind of landing this talk, uh, I'm going to start, I'm just going to give you three points, three basic points on how we can be uh, the church for the sake of our city, okay? You ready? Man, I just I got to work out more. That took my breath away. All right. Genesis chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 5. Genesis chapter 2. If you didn't bring your Bibles, that's totally fine. Uh, We have the the Bible up behind me. Verse 5 reads, this is the second creation story. Uh, Last week we talked about how God built out the cosmos, right? So this world of space, time, matter uh, is a result of God's design. And uh, we fleshed that out a little bit. This world is not the byproduct of quantum factors. Can I get an amen to that? Right? Random atoms, in other words, didn't just crash together and bam, we have life. No, God designed this world and uh, that is connected to what does it mean to be human for us today. So verse 5, this is the second creation story. And it reads, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land And there was no man to work the ground. Verse 6. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a what? A living creature. And the Lord God planted. Everyone say planted. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put. Everyone say put. There he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made uh, to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight, good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the Garden of Eden is a place of delight, right? A place of abundance. It's not a place of scarcity. And we'll talk more about that. So verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is uh, Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. It's Dilium and the Ankh stone are there. The name of the second river is Gion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And then verse 15, this is kind of, we'll say the denouement of this creation story. So it's kind of this climactic moment. Lord God, as the author of Genesis writes, the Lord God took the man and placed him or put him, depending on your translation, in the Garden of Eden to what? To work it. Everyone say work it. 
turn to your neighbor and say, work it. That's weird. Come on, turn to your other neighbor and say, work it. Turn to your other neighbor and say, you need to work out. No, just that's bad. So in the Garden of Eden to work it, and could you say that last little clause, last little phrase, and keep it. Are you good? All right, so there's one vignette, um, one kind of scene. We have the uh, second creation story. We're going to fast forward to the book of Revelation, and uh, this, uh, we're going to begin in uh, chapter 5, verse 8. Here we have this heavenly throne room scene. It's like, it's packed filled with drama, right? There's a lot of stuff going on. We'll talk about that here pretty soon. So um, it's, it's, a little, it's a little crazy. It's filled with a lot of apocalyptic images. But we're going to start with verse 8. It says, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. We know the Lamb to be who? Jesus. Each holding a harp and the golden bowls full of incense. So what is that incense? Well, St. John will tell us. They are the prayers of the saints. Here's just a side note. I love this because if you think your prayer life stinks, right, you see in heaven that your prayers are actually incense to God. So if you think, man, I'm just really sucking when it comes to praying, like I don't even know what to pray, or maybe you feel like your prayers are broken and you're not getting anywhere with your prayer life, just, I'd just like to encourage, maybe this is for someone in here, that no matter how you feel about what you're praying about or what you're saying, God, right, for God, your prayers are a sweet-smelling incense. And then we kind of see this unfolding drama. And I'm like, again, I feel like this is for somebody in Revelation 8, 9, and 10 where those prayers become how God brings justice to this world, right? God, through our prayers, puts creation to rights, so I, I just want to encourage you if, if you, if you've been praying and you just feel like nothing's happening, just, just be encouraged today. God knows exactly what you need. God is a God of justice, and he knows where you're at, and he will bring fulfillment to everything that he has purposed for you. Can I get an amen, church? So verse 9, it says, and they sang a new song. Here we have three songs in this heavenly courtroom uh, or throne room scene. And uh, this is what they're saying. Here we have, in the words of one scholar, the first song. It's the echoes of, of Exodus 14 and 15 with Miriam's song and uh, freedom from slavery, etc. Uh, but this is a song about the achievements of the Lamb, or Jesus. And it goes like this. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood, right, you have ransomed, or you have rescued, or put the world... Uh, to rights or re rescued people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The people of God are not a, a monochromatic color, ethnicity, family tree, background thing. God believes in diversity. Can I get an amen to that? And it's in Jesus that we are reconciled in Jesus. I was hoping for a pretty good amen for that. Can I, uh, I'm not, I'm not, you, don't want me to, you, you don't want me to go off on what I was going to go off on. Verse 10, I'll move forward. And you have made them a kingdom. You have made them a kingdom. This is so evocative. Actually, when I was studying this, I asked the Holy Spirit to not preach on this. I'm like, God, I don't know if, because I kind of wince. I don't know if we can handle this kind of language when it comes to being the church. But I just felt like I had to do it. But this is here we have a definition of what the church is. The church is not, let me say this really quick, uh, filled with church programs. The church is not just where people have weird haircuts and they're big hypocrites and they talk funny, right? The church is not just, yes, the church is messy. We talked about that last week. We all have our issues, right? Joel King and I are the only ones that have issues, all right? So we all have our issues, right? We, last week we talked about how we negotiate those issues, but here we have in verse 10, with, with all the kind of maybe frustrations that we have with church life and church people and church folk and songs that we sing and preach, preachers that preach stuff that maybe doesn't make sense, whatever it is, uh, when it comes to being the church, I love this. Because of the blood of Jesus, it's very clear that the church is now a kingdom and they're filled with priests to our God. The church is never designed to huddle and cuddle. 
Church is not designed just for us to train you how to be nice and better pay your taxes, right? You better be a good person, right? Right? Church is not here for just therapy, man. And I hope when you come to church you get some healing, right? Church is so much more than just us gathering, right? We're not just... This isn't just anthropology. This is not just about sociology. This is not just about coming together. The church is a kingdom designed to rule a kingdom of priests to our God. And this last clause, I want you to think it through because this is what I'm going to be talking about today. And they shall reign in heaven. And they shall reign on the earth. Are you wincing right now? You're like, ah, right? What does that mean? Well, I'll do my best to talk about that. All right, bow your heads, close your eyes as we pray. Father, I thank you that you, you really are in this place. I thank you for your energy right now. Lord, I thank you for um, doing an incredible work in our lives this morning. Lord, we just love you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, come and, and uh, say what you want to say to every son and daughter here. Lord, I thank you for a miracle. Help me preach this message in 37 minutes, maybe even 30. Lord, I thank you that, um, again, you, you want to you transform us today. So, Lord, we thank you for, for information, yes, but more than that, we want transformation. So we thank you, Holy Spirit, uh, for your presence in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. I don't know if you heard this this week. I was, man, I was uh, studying for this message at times, kind of going back and forth, like, okay, God, I'm speaking to a lot of Americans who live in Idaho, and Lord, we believe, you know, our, our rights, right? We're rights people, First Amendment, Second Amendment. We, you know, we, we believe in gun rights or whatever, and I know that's a controversial subject, and I'm not trying to be political, but as Americans, we've inherited a legacy of, we'll call it like an aversion for tyrants, and so in America, there's no king but us, right? And so our, our modern political experiment, are you guys with me? Is it okay I talk like this? So our modern political experiment is shaped by Vox Populi, Vox Dei, right? The voice of the people is the voice of God. So basically, I have no boss, right? I have no king, right? I have no tyrant. I'm the one in charge. That's the feel of, of our culture. So within that feel, I, I just was thinking, really praying through, okay, how do I talk about what does it mean to be alive? And then connecting that to what does it mean to be the church? And uh, I came across, and maybe you came across this in the news cycle. How many of you like news? Okay. <laughs> How many of you shut the news off? How many of you sick of the news, right? Okay, that's, I should have I started there. Um, but I, I just, I, one day I just like, I, I got a part of this like news cycle. And I don't know if you heard, but uh, the, Pentagon, the Pentagon with the vice president um, announced the launching, I think August 29th, the launching of a new branch of the military, and they're calling it Space Force. Not to be confused like with Buzz Lightyear Star Command, right? I remember seeing that, I'm like, oh my word, right? This is like, when I heard this, I'm like, okay, our, the future, right, has arrived. And so I kind of explored and their mission of Space Force, it's like I should say Space Force 320 or whatever, you know. The mission of Space Force is this, it's to utilize our tech, right, whatever that means, to ensure our sovereignty, whatever that means, in the vast, I'm paraphrasing, the vast reaches of space. So then I'm like, oh my God, are they, are they telling us that we're about ready to be invaded by aliens, you know, it's like. So I was thinking about that, so Space Force, right? And I could not help, as so I was writing this kind of, this talk about church, right? And writing uh, this talk about Jesus and his relationship with us, I couldn't help but be impressed. So I started thinking about like Amazon, I don't know if you know this, but Amazon for a couple years now uh, have been discussing and they've been trialing, dropping off. How many of you love Amazon? Do we have any Amazon Prime members? Okay, come on. Don't you love it? You could stay home. You could eat Cheetos all day. Live in your sweats. Like, not get out and everything can come to you. Can I get an amen to that? Right? So Amazon Prime or Amazon is thinking about how they can utilize drones so that they can drop off packages like your books and, you know, your Cheetos, right? Whatever. 
Uh, Amazon has everything. Drop it off at your front door. It's like, I'm just like, oh, my word. That's it's incredible. Uh, Elon Musk, and I, I mentioned this before, but a couple years ago, he's discussing, he wants to put together um, a space force kind of a thing. Uh, so he can, again, his whole mission is to colonize Mars, right? I think his whole mission is to take cats, right? Throw them to Mars. No? Okay. Um, so I'm thinking about this. Okay, so we have Elon Musk and his desire to colonize Mars. We have Amazon thinking about um, the possibility of drones dropping packages off. We live in a hyper-modern society, right? We, we, right now we have self-driving cars. In the next few years, we're going to have self-driving cars where you don't even have to do anything. You're going to live in a virtual reality container, and you're going to go from one destination to another while watching a movie like all around you, right? And it's going to make us stupid, right? Anyways, so we have all this stuff, and I'm thinking about, oh, my gosh, it's, it's hard not to be impressed. It's hard not to think that somehow we have, as a human civilization, arrived, right? It's hard not to, to think that uh, in many ways. We have skyscrapers, right? We have New York City. We have antibiotics. We have medicine. Uh, we have a lot of different amenities, and it's, it's, it's hard not to um, think that, man, there's some great things going on, and I have no problem with, with any of this stuff, but I think we do have to be careful in this 21st century world in which we live in, in terms of, because of all the stuff that we have, I'll say it this way, I think we have a tendency to marginalize the church. Right? We've got all these wonderful opportunities, we're exploring space, we have all these different amenities, right? Um, how does the church... How does the church fit within this world? Where's Jesus at, right? Just follow me. Where's Jesus at in this 21st century world uh, that, we, that we inhabit? What's, what's the role, in other words, of the church? I think because of the feel of our culture, if we're not careful, we can sell ourselves short when it comes to our gathering here on Sunday mornings. And when it comes to meeting together in, in a small group, when it comes to like maybe going back in the prayer room with maybe like 25 people and praying, or maybe when it goes to our, when, it, when it's related to maybe service project at a school or in our neighborhoods, if we're not careful and we misunderstand the responsibility or the role of the church, we can sell ourselves short by our failure to see who we really are in God's eyes. But with this culture that we live in, it's led to what one scholar calls the cro this cross-pressured world. Like we're haunted, in other words, by eminence, right? In other words, according to one philosopher, we can have significance because we have Amazon, we have Netflix, we have Stranger Things. We can go to a Drake concert. We can go and be entertained if we're really depressed. We go to Garth Brooks and sing Pina Colada, right? There's, there's so many things that we can do if we're not careful. We can take our significance, right, and apply it to eminence. And so there are a lot of people in our world, because of this, because we have so many things that can um, curate our desire for meaning and purpose outside of God, we now live within a world that is no longer bothered by life after death, by the big questions. Be that life after death, be that God, be that Satan, church, angels, all that kind of stuff. Again, I know no one ever feels that right here today it happens at all the other churches in the valley kidding no we actually love all the churches in our valley but there is a sense of irrelevance when it comes to our church because we assume that we can live a life of significance without transcendence right we got we got stuff car commercials right Nothing against cars, but car commercials have hijacked religious language. So they're like essentially saying, hey, okay, um, if you get this car, every hope and desire will be fulfilled. Politics are kind of doing the same thing. Politics have not only hijacked religious language, they're, they're, they're attempting, and again, I'm not trying to be political. I think this happens on both sides of the aisle. So hear what I'm saying here today. But there is a political environment that is trying to take over the ecclesial role that God has given the church. Right. So the, the assumption that many politicians work from is you, you vote for me, and I believe in voting, 
but if you vote for me, I will bring in the new kingdom of God, and I will make all things right. Well, Jesus is the only king. He is the king of kings, right? He is the Lord of lords. Philippians 2 says, and every knee shall bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So Jesus right now is in heaven, and we talk about this all the time, but he is ruling over all things. He is over the White House, your house, and the crack house. And if we had outhouses, I would say that too, right? So Jesus is in charge of all things. So how, how within, this, within this cultural environment in which we live, how does the church, like, not only survive, but how, what, what does the church um, do? It's funny, I, and I mentioned the story before, but a couple, I think it was last year, I went to downtown, I went to uh, Whole Foods, and uh, I was in line and buying some, uh, obviously, groceries for my family, and what do you call the guy, is it the clerk, is that what you call him? I don't know, the cashier, right? So he was taking my food, whatever you call that guy, he was taking my food, and uh, he was ringing me up, is that what you said? I can't, anyways, so uh, I'm sitting there, and, he's, and we, we start a conversation, and so he just happens to ask, okay, what do you do? Um, and I just said, hey, I'm a pastor. And I said that, and it, he acted as if I came straight out of the Neolithic period. <laughs> and this is what he told me, and I could tell in his eyes like he had never met a Christian before. And this is what he said. He's like, and he goes, I, man, that's weird. I, I, that would have been the last thing that I would have said about you. You're, you're not only a Christian, but you're a pastor? And then he was just like, man, I got it. Okay, what, and he started asking questions, what led you to this, all that kind of stuff. And I'm, I remember thinking in that moment, wow, he is in fact an instantiation of our culture and where our culture is, is going, right? We just assume God, again, we're no, no longer bothered by, like, the God questions. Uh, and that affects um, our understanding of the church. So, uh, how, how do we live, right, as a church? How do we be all that God has called us to be? What is the role of the church in the 21st century? And I, I want to answer that uh, over the next um, three hours, if, if that's okay with you. So here we come, Genesis chapter 1, really quick. You still with me? We live in a purposeful cosmos, right? And I think I said this before, I'm kind of getting first service and second service mixed up. But uh, this world that we live in is not the byproduct of quantum factors, like atoms colliding together. We live in a world throbbing with God's glory. So Genesis chapter, excuse me, Genesis chapter 2 gives us a, a picture of what it means to be alive. And then I want to connect that to what does it mean to be the church. And in chapter 2 of verse 5, uh, we have this creation story. And uh, the author tells us that there were no shrubs, right? There were no trees. There was no water. Um, God built out, as we talked about last week, this beautiful cosmos, the world of space and time and matter. And then we come to verse 5, and we find that this new creation project, right, which is a product of God's design, is still incomplete. Again, as we mentioned last week, that's why God didn't make, how many of you love Mexican food? Amen. Chips and salsa, Right? Or Italian food, or maple bars, or how many of you love maple bars? How many of you love sushi, right? How many of you are glad that when you drove here to church, you had roads to drive on? No? Okay. Um, have you ever wondered why God did not make every maple bar, right? Every Mexican restaurant that we love, or every road, or human civilization like that? Have you ever wondered that? God built out the world but he made it incomplete. Why did God do that? Well, and this is related to why we are sucking oxygen here this morning. Because God, in the words of N.T. Wright, is the God of generous love. And his way of running things, could you say running things? His way of running things is to share power. By definition, that's what it means to love. And to share power in such a way because he wants to work through his image bearers. We talked about this last week. He wants to work through his image bearers, bringing not only the Garden of Eden, but the entire creation into flourishing. 
So God decided not to build everything because he wanted to share his rule and his authority with us. So what is the goal of existence? What does it mean to be alive right now? Well, in the words of one scholar, the goal of genuine human existence is not first happiness, right? In fact, and this scholar's being tongue-in-cheek, forget being happy. The goal, he's being tongue-in-cheek. How many of you want to be happy? Four of you, all right. Um, forget happiness is the first thing, right? Your goal and the reason we are alive right now as male and female is because we have been called to a throne. In other words, what you find in Genesis 1 and what you find in Genesis 2 is that what it means to be alive is that God has placed humans in authority over creation. So you and I are alive and our purpose here is to steward God. This is, gets crazy. I know I can see it in some of your faces, right? But God has placed us here to steward creation in love and wisdom. We are designed to rule. Number two, as image bearers, again, this is what it, what it means for us to be alive here today. As image bearers in the world of antiquity, right, we find in Genesis chapter 1 that God made his image bearers. To be an image bearer in the ancient Near East referred only and exclusively to kings. So image bearers was a way to talk about kings. So image bearing was a royal responsibility. So when we come to the Genesis story, which we talked about last week, it democratizes image bearing to every human. So image bearing was a royal responsibility to take care of God's creation. And what we find in Genesis 1, leading up to what we read in Genesis chapter 2 today, is that God has called not just a few kings or rulers to run the show, but God has called every human to participate in God's rule, not only over our, over our lives, but in our cities, in our neighborhoods, in our places of work, right? In other words, you're, I, I, this is, I know it. Some of you are thinking, this is, this is, why did I come today, right? Why are we talking about ruling over creation? Does it mean we're going to exploit everything? We'll get to that point here pretty quick. But I want you to hear me. You are, if you're in Christ, you are a royal image bearer. I'll even say it, even if you, you're not a follower of Jesus, you are still made in the image of God. Amen. To be an image bearer, like many people think that, oh man, if we, like, if we were able to like, cut up someone's DNA, that's a little graphic, I don't know why I said that. But if you're able to get to someone's DNA, that you could maybe find whatever, the, like a God particle in someone's DNA. And that maybe is what Genesis 1 is talking about when it means to be an image bearer. I don't think that's what it is. Many people have, other, have suggested to be an image bearer simply means to, to have a moral quality, right, about us, that we kind of reflect God's love. I think maybe that somewhat can mean what uh, an image bearer means. But ultimately, to be an image bearer in the world of antiquity was to reflect the nature of the gods. So an image bearer was one who was placed within creation to rule it, and to share with God and his rule through them. An image bearer was a royal term, and image bearing was all about reflecting God's love and wisdom over creation. Are you guys still with me? So how does that relate to um, Genesis 2, 5 through 15? How does that relate to Revelation chapter 5, 8 through 10? Right, we have the scene now in, in heaven, and uh, you have, if you, if you haven't read Revelation 4 and 5, it's, it's invested with apocalyptic image. You have all these exotic creatures. You have 24 elders bowing. You have thunder, lightning, smoke. It's not Beyonce's concert, but it's like, it's pretty amazing, right? And so within this heavenly throne room, you have a, a, a lot of activity going on. We've talked about this before, but uh, right now, Revelation chapter 5 I'll say it this way, Revelation chapter 5 is not some scene 
in the distant future. Revelation chapter 5 is what's happening right now currently, right? You might not be able to sense it. You might not be able to see it. But right now, you have crazy worship happening in heaven, which is God's space. So within this heavenly vignette, we have this kind of unfolding drama where the prayers are going up uh, as incense. God answers the prayers of his saints. And then we have a song which we read. And the song is all about the achievements of Jesus, right? Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection, has created a group, a new group of people who are called by his name. This group of people do not just huddle and cuddle. This group of people just don't, they're not just good people. This song makes it very clear that God wants to establish his rule over creation through his new kings and priests. So we have, in the words of so many different scholars and pastors, in this Revelation 5 text, we have, because of the rescue of Jesus, God has transitioned us from spectators to active participants. God has transitioned us not just from spectating and looking, about, looking at what God is doing in our world, but into actually participating with his grace and his love and his rule through us. It also suggests that we have moved from slavery to sin and corruption to a royal priest vocation. One scholar says, because of Jesus, God has moved us from rubbish to royalty. You're royal. Right? What does it mean to be alive? It means to work with God in overseeing his creation project. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? It's connected. We lost this rule, we know in Genesis chapter 3, through the rebellion of Adam and Eve. But through Jesus, and we find this in Romans chapter 5, 17, and his grace and his abundance of life that he gives to us, we are called to reign in life. Are you hearing me this morning? We talked about this last week, 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 and 10. We are a royal priesthood, right? We are a chosen nation, called and set apart to declare the marvelous works of God to our world. Okay, so that's why we're alive, right? That's what it means to be the church. Many people, the reason why I'm talking about this is because we do have, we're not careful we can develop a low view of God's people, right? We come in and, like we talked about before, we have our messes, right? We can identify messes really quick, right? If you, if you spend a week with me, you'll know I have at least one weakness. It's a joke. I have so many, right? We all have so many weaknesses. The task in this 21st century is to embrace the high view that we see in scripture about the church over and against the low view that many people have of God's people. We are royal image bearers and God wants to rule through our lives. So I know the objections. So what are the objections to this? I can feel it, right? Like, some of you might be asking, hey, Chris, I, man, honestly, how does this relate to my life? Right, how, man, I'm just trying to make it to the weekend, right? I, I'm just trying, maybe some of you, I'm just trying to pay the bills, right? I'm just trying to get over this addiction in my life. Or maybe, maybe you were really stressed out this week, and the last thing you want to hear about is how we're called to rule, because you're like, that's just so untethered from my life. That's like Space Force 2000, that's just... That doesn't, that's not germane. So why are we talking about ruling, right? Well, number one, let me just say this really quick. God wants to rule through you. You don't rule. God wants to rule through you. Okay, hear me. Some of you, you think you have to get your life together in order for, like, not just the ruling part that we're talking about today, but in order for all of the promises that we find in Scripture to come to fruition. 
Many of us just, our relationship with God is based on this kind of weird quid pro quo, like, okay, God, I got to do this. I'll work on a few stuff in me, and, you know, I'll go half in, you go half in. And that's not what we find in Scripture. You're not called to rule. You're called to share in God's rule through you, even though you don't have all the pieces of your life together. One pastor said this. I love this. He said it best. It isn't a matter of knowing that you got it all together. You haven't. It's a matter of knowing that somewhere, everyone say somewhere. Somewhere it's all together and that you're a part of it. Ephesians, I want, I want to read this prayer for you. Ephesians chapter 1, 15 to 23. This is what Paul says. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. How many of you want to know that? He's talking about this royal priesthood vocation, right? That the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints... And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. Verse 22, and he put all things under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So what is Paul saying? He's like, I'm going to pray that you will understand that even though you don't have your life together, guess what? Jesus does. In fact, Colossians chapter 1, verse 17 says Basically, Paul maps out the cosmos and places Jesus at the center of that cosmos. And he says in verse 17 that in Jesus, all things hold together. Some of you need to hear this this morning. Maybe you had a really bad week. Maybe you had a really bad year. Maybe you're trying to figure things out. Maybe your life is out of sorts. Maybe you're trying to pay the bills. Maybe you've got addictions, issues that keep you from fully fulfilling all that God has for you. Our starting point, Paul is telling us, when it comes to being transformed by the power of the Spirit, is not trying to get our life put back together. Our starting point is looking to Jesus who holds all things together. And when we look at Jesus who holds all things together... That is when the power of God is released in our lives. In fact, in the message it says, oh, the extravagance of God's endless energy and boundless strength for all of those who put their trust in King Jesus. And it is King Jesus who is over the church. So if you don't have your life together, Jesus does. And when we learn to live from this picture, this defining reality, the power of God is released in your life to be a royal priest. The second thing that Paul makes very explicit in Ephesians chapter 1, are you with me this morning? Makes very explicit that um, King Jesus is over the church, right? So the church, in other words, if Jesus is over the church, he's the head of the body that we find in this prayer, then the church is at the center of God's rule and action within creation. This is why we prioritize the local church, right? Not just our church, but we have so many wonderful churches in this valley, right? We believe that God has called local churches to participate with God in his love as we announce the kingdom of Jesus, and build for God's kingdom in our city. So what we're doing here right now, this very moment, right, as you listen to me, as we worship a little bit before, and as we do some fellowship, in about a week we're going to do our capital parties. In a few months we're going to be talking about small groups. As we pray, we do small groups. 
as we commit our lives to service to our neighborhoods and places of work, guess what? Those are activities of the church. And Paul makes very clear that the church is not peripheral to the world, but the world is peripheral to the church because what we do and the activities that we do, even though we think they're kind of infinitesimal when it comes to scale, right? We don't live in New York City. We don't live in L.A., right? We're not at the Drake concert, right? Some of you were, were not with our friends on that vacation, so ah, God can't whatever do great things. No, what we do on Sundays and what we, to do, what we do together um, as a church, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, actually matter because we are God's people and we have been called uh, to a royal priesthood vocation and God has summoned us to reign here on planet Earth. And so the church is where God's central activity takes place. I was, hoping, I was hoping for a better amen than that. Am I creeping you out this morning? So we have um, us showing up on Sunday. We have us talking about Jesus. We have all these things that we do. And I want you to reimagine what does it mean to be the church. When we show up and when we participate in activities that are a part of the kingdom of God, we are learning to rule with Jesus. Number two, really quick. I think as Americans, and I think I mentioned it before, we do have a problem with power, right? This goes all the way back to Lord Acton when he said absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? Uh, Reinhold Niebuhr in the early 40s, he was a theologian. He said anyone who seeks power has already necessarily corrupted themselves. So we have a really negative view of power, right? No kings, right? We don't want any tyrants. We don't, anyone, we don't want anyone to have dominion over us. So when we use language like ruling I think we feel, as Americans, a little bit uncomfortable. What you find in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, that dominion and subduing and the language of ruling is not about exploitation, it's not about Western colonialism, it's not about throwing your weight around, it's not manipulating people as objects to do what you want them to do. Ruling in the Genesis story that we find in chapter 1 and chapter 2, in the words of one scholar, is taming something that's wild. It's bringing order out of chaos. It's learning to bring harmony out of discord. In fact, ruling is all about sharing in God's power in order to rearrange the raw materials from a place of love, not exploitation. Can I get an amen to that? Ruling is about service. Ruling is cruciformed. Ruling is about costly self-denying love. In fact, what we find in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, that when it says that God placed Adam, the man, in the garden to work and to keep it, the word work in the Hebrew is translated service. Work is not exploitation. Ruling is not, I'm going to get my way. Ruling and work is about service for the glory of God as we build the kingdom, as we participate through God's love and wisdom, working through us for the sake of people who need Jesus in our city. So, um, power runs through the prism of self-giving love. Finally, number three, I think when it comes uh, to Ruling, we always ask the question, okay, okay, so ruling is about loving, right? Ruling is about serving. It's not about exploitation. If ruling is about sharing in God's power over creation, where do we start? You know what I mean? Like, how, I, Chris, how do we go about uh, doing this? Like, and I'm trying to figure out my life. I'm trying to figure out my kid's life. Like, you know, the Cowboys are going to play in two weeks. I'm totally obsessed with that, Right. Or I got so many issues. Again, it's just life is really complicated. So Chris, right, I'm going from one thing to the next. How do we start? And I, I think I just have a really simple point, and it's, it's this. You start where you're at. You start where you're at. My father, how many of you love Pastor Ken? You love him? He's been in ministry for... What, 45 years-ish? You didn't want me to say. He gave me the, the Mr. Wild look right there. Um, 
He's been in ministry for a long time and he's learned so much. And I remember early on in ministry, this is what he would tell me. He goes, Chris, many people think that the grass is greener on the other side. And he goes, here's the thing. The grass is always greener where you water it. It's always greener where you water it. So let me just say this really quick. Where do you start? You start with where you're at. What are we talking about? Well, let me just say this really quick. I think most of us, when we, we, ah, we, we think in terms of right place and wrong place. Right season, wrong season. We want to go to the next place. We want to go to the next season. We want to like move, upward mobility. We have all, we kind of talk like that as, as um, Americans. And we usually think of ourselves as being either in the right place or the wrong place, right season, wrong season. And we usually, that leads to this idea that I can only grow or mature if, if, I'm, if, if I'm in the right place, right? So because we assume that we're not in the right place, we put off so much and we put off what God wants to do through us in our neighborhoods, in our families, at our places of work, on the streets, when we go to Albertsons, when we just kind of do life Monday through Sunday or whatever it is that we do, if we're not careful, we can buy into this kind of weird drama that um, we have to be somewhere else in order for God to work through us, right? As Americans, we think this. We equate place with significance. I got to be in New York City. I got to be in Miami. I got to be in LA. Or I got to be there, there, or there in order for God to work through me. One scholar says that we have measured our distance from home as a matter of significance, Right? We, just, we always got to be on the move. And if we don't like where we're at, and there's things in our life, like Larry, like, ah, Larry's my boss, and he's not nice to me. Right? I, I want to get out of my place of work, right? And we're always thinking about going somewhere else. I just have a thought. I think, hear me, I think God wants to put your life to rights, and I, I'm not suggesting that everything in your life is, is perfect. What I am saying is I think everyone in this room is exactly, hear me, is exactly where God wants them to be. Are you hearing me? So many times we look at our circumstances and we're like, well, I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like this. We begin to focus on this. Remember, we talked about this in our Thoughts and Things series. An unfit mind leads to an out-of-shape life. So what you focus on shapes your destiny. So if you're focusing on scarcity, Larry, I don't like Larry, or I don't like this circumstance, I'm in the wrong place, so apparently God can't use me. Well, what if God has placed you in your work, Larry is your boss because he needs Jesus, and someone, gosh darn it, needs to show Larry how much God loves him. Psalm chapter 1, verse 3 says, we are not planted, we are transplanted by rivers of water. Editors took this passage in captivity and said, even in captivity, if you meditate on the word of God day and night, you can be like this transplanted tree that will bear fruit. If you want to bear fruit, don't worry about getting to the next season. Don't worry about getting to the next place. Don't worry of trying, oh man, I got to wait for God to do something because everything's wrong right now in my life. Well, here's the thing. God, I believe, has placed you where you're at. And in Jesus, you have everything that you need to participate with him to be all that God has called you to be. How do you know that, Chris? Well, give me some text as we close here. It's Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. It says that God placed Adam and Eve in the garden. God placed them. They didn't self-place themselves, right? They didn't drive around and say, oh, man, that garden looks good. All right, Eve, can you get, get, get our real estate agent on, right? And let's, let's go and let's, let's put an offer on that garden. No, man, they, they, they weren't the result or they weren't the reason for being in the garden. God took Adam and Eve and placed them in this garden. And I want you to notice something as we read, as we close here. We read in Genesis chapter two, five through 15. Do you notice something about the garden? The garden has everything that Adam and Eve needs 
to bring creation into flourishing. Gold, right? Did you notice that gold? It's filled with gold. You notice there were four rivers flowing out of it, filled with the rivers of water. You notice all the beautiful trees in this garden, right? God created this garden, gave them everything they needed to participate in the rule of God in this place in order to bring creation into flourishing. As I close here, imagine us as a people. What if we believe this? I mentioned this a little bit last week, but what if we believed that our neighborhoods were exactly where God wanted us to be? I kind of gave you a goofy smile. I don't know why I gave you that goofy, goofy smile. But I know I, there's nothing wrong with moving. There's nothing wrong with maybe getting a, a nicer house or whatever. I, that's not what we're talking about. But what if right now you're exactly where God wants you to be so you can serve and love your neighbors? Maybe you don't like your work right now, and that's okay. God can certainly change it. I'm okay with that. But what if you're exactly at the place of work that God wants you to be so you can serve the love and love the people at your place of work? I just, man, it's just a simple thought. But I think, man, where we start is exactly where we're at because I believe God arranges our places. And we as a community have been called for such a time as this to build for the kingdom of Jesus in this city. What if we all believe that? Come on. Are you hearing me this morning? What if we believe that, man, even if I don't have my life together, Jesus has it together. And when I just look to Jesus, man, that's where all the out of sorts parts in my body, in my life, or whatever, come together. What if we believe power and ruling was not about exploitation, but about giving our lives away? And what if we believe that we are here in Boise, Idaho, in the Treasure Valley, for such a time as this, and God, wants you to work with him for the sake of the world in our city. I think God would do great things. I want to pray for you as you close your eyes, bow your heads.